0: Hi everyone. It's Ashley or better known as Mrs. M in the business technology shop in Old Colony, regional vocational technical high school. And this is the busy teacher podcast, a podcast about my experiences while navigating the lands of being a new teacher and how I'm using my experiences to improve my teaching practice, improve student engagement, and also manage my work life balance. So I hope this podcast helps you improve those things for yourself and let's continue to see what this episode is about. Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Busy Teacher Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about enhancing student engagement in virtual social learning spaces. That is the title of an article by Katlyn Tucker, And I wanna talk about what she talks about in terms of creating a successful virtual learning space and how I tried to do it (laughs) and succeeded and not succeeded in multiple different ways in my career this year. So in her article, she talks about how, she asked teachers, how would you describe a successful blended learning course? And the common theme was engagement. We need to have students be engaged but the question is, how? (laughs) And in a virtual learning space, it's frustrating when students don't engage. You ask them a question and you get nothing back. It's like you're talking to little squares of pictures of students, not the actual student. And yeah, it can be definitely something that just doesn't motivate you to want to teach. But can we blame them? you know <laughs> they've never done this before and finding community through a computer that is not easy so as teachers it's our job to use the tools we have to always think about engagement and fostering that sense of community that we do in person in our classroom when the students are there and then and only then those students will be motivated to engage i'm going to do a sidebar just for a second so i teach Zumba classes. And of course, with the pandemic, we had to go virtual too. And I was actually hitting that pandemic wall just at this point. It's been about a year now where I would have people show up, but it would be like two or three. They wouldn't have their camera on. And of course, I'm not going to ask them to turn their camera on because that's their choice in, a, in their class. They're paying for the class. So, you know, it's like a black box with a name and I'm I'm doing it in my garage. I'm in my garage, giving it my all, but I they have to be on mute so that the audio is good so I get no feedback. So I kind of feel like the same thing as the teachers when no one gives you feedback. You're like, "Oh, like how can I keep on doing this?" <laughs> so today, today I finally I was feeling really great and I encouraged my students. A few of them had their cameras on, a few of them didn't. I just made a slight I was like, "Hey guys, I want to see you Let's dance together. I went from spotlight mode to grid mode so I could see everyone. And people started turning on their cameras. I was so excited, little by little, like one person here and then the next song, another one followed along, and the next one, another one followed along. And by three quarters into the class, all except one had their camera on. And it was exhilarating. And it's funny because there's no difference except for... The fact that they turn their cameras on. I'm still in my garage. I'm still not getting any verbal feedback from them because they're still on mute, but just the fact of me seeing them, it changed the whole dynamic and I felt like I was dancing with them in person. So that made for a great class and now I'm inspired based off this article too. If I ever have to go back remote because I have the luxury of teaching mostly in person, how do I make that magic happen for my students in school? i figured it out for the students in Zumba. How do I figure it out for the students in school? So in the article, Catlin says that We have to create social learning spaces. And to quote her, she says, virtual social learning spaces create opportunities for the social and academic aspects of learning to collide. So we have to make our learning spaces social. It can't just be, hey, the students are here for an hour. I'm going to lecture at them the whole time, give them a homework assignment and leave. Those students are not engaged. They are not getting what you're giving them. And a lot of what you're doing is probably just going in one ear, out the other, or they may not even really be there. (laughs) And I've heard crazy stories about that, but we're not going to get into that. So she talks about the technology that we have to create the social learning spaces. So yes, we have the technology, but we have to use it in a strategic way to reach our goal. That's, That's the thing. You can't just have a Zoom. You have to use the Zoom or the Google Meet to make it social. So when Catlin talks about a Zoom or a Google Meet, She starts with the idea of splitting the students into group work or into a breakout room. Now, just like I said before, splitting students into a breakout room just on its own is not going to increase communication between students. You have to provide something to break the ice or something to encourage them to lower that anxiety of talking to other people and then actually unmute themselves and start speaking. So she encourages things like an icebreaker, just a simple like this or that. Like I talked about in the last episode, or maybe your favorite music right now, or your favorite song, something easy and something off topic to wake them up and make them talk to each other first. Then they can get into the actual activity. Now, also, when you break the students out into their room, she also recommends giving the students clear expectations, giving them a step by step assignment, something that they can easily follow, and also giving them something to deliver when they're done with their group work. So there's a goal, there's an incentive, they have the resources to know exactly how to do it, and then, and only then, they may get to do what you want them to do in their breakout rooms. At the same time, she also recommends having an open channel for communication so that they can ask you questions during group work. So that could be you popping into the breakout rooms, that could be you being available via the uh, some kind of chat tool, Um, something so that they don't feel lost and confused. They know they can come to you if they have any questions, if they can't figure figure it out themselves. And then at the end of the activity, she also recommends encouraging self-reflection. So this will make the student more in tune with the choices they made, how they interacted. They may want to change the way they interacted with others next time. And it also gives the teachers feedback about if there was student engagement within that task, and they can make choices on how they might change their practices next time. So after the virtual meeting spaces, she also talks about the Google Suite. I mean, the Google Suite is made for collaboration. That was the big feature at the beginning of Google Suite. So she lists a bunch of examples of assignments you can give through docs, slides, drawings, and sheets. And that can give you an idea to how to give them a task that they can easily collaborate on when they're in a breakout room. And also other things like Jamboard, Padlet, Wakelet, they're about collaborating and sharing ideas. They're tools that are meant to do that. And I have used both Padlet and Wakelet. I'm gonna say I'm on the side of Wakelet right now just because the free version of Padlet has some limitations, but I've used those successfully in my classroom to collaborate and come up with like a product the Wakelet is the product of everyone's individual work. It's actually really cool. I really like that tool. Um, she also talks about Flipgrid too, which is a great way to give students the opportunity to give each other feedback or reflect on something when they can't always articulate it in writing. And that's a great choice for maybe a lower, lower grade type student. I find that with my students, they don't want to be on camera. They don't want to do the Flipgrid because they're older. Um, but Maybe it works for some classes, maybe it doesn't. But it's definitely a way for students to asynchronously interact if you're looking to create that community within your remote learning space. So at the end of the article, Catlin says there's really no silver bullet. You can't just say, oh, yeah, if I do this and this and this and this, it's going to be a, a engaging Communal space for my remote students. No, that's not always the case. Every class is different. Every student is different. But there are strategies that we can take. And as long as the students are the center of the learning, it's the goal to reach the student and to make them feel comfortable and want to learn, then you're doing it right. So just keep trying and keep doing different things and find out what works for your class. So, like I mentioned before, I am actually mostly teaching in person. I have one remote sophomore. And I've taught most of the time in person. There were two, actually it was more like four, there were four weeks in total where I had to teach from home. And the first was because I actually was exposed to COVID, so I had to stay home and teach my, well, technically I didn't have to, but as a guilty teacher, I was trying to support my students from home while they were in school with a substitute. So there was that. So I'm not going to count that because that wasn't truly remote learning, but there was a exploratory week. So I teach freshman exploratory where they come through my program for a week so that I can show them what we're about. And then they choose their permanent program later. So I had to teach a week of exploratory remote. And I also had to teach my permanent freshman remote for about a week and two days. But what I want to talk about is that remote exploratory week. And because... I had time. I knew we were going to be remote for that week in advance. So I had time to prepare for it. And also, it was a set of curriculum that just happens over and over again for the first half of the year. So I was comfortable with the material enough to truly differentiate it and think about how I can make it successful for remote instruction. So I decided that it's really important to give them as close to the in-person experience as possible. Because it's just fair, <laughs> That's, that, was, that, was my, that was my thinking. I wanted to, regardless if they wanted my program or not, I wanted it to be the same and fair so that they could get that experience. And that I think goes back to that students are the center of learning. So I looked through every project we did, every lesson we did, and I really tried to include everything I could. There were some things that had to fall off only because the remote schedule established by my school was actually a shortened day. So I couldn't fit everything physically into the day, but I did the best I could. So what I tried to do was to give them the most time possible to do work, to explore, You know, I didn't want them sitting in a Zoom call for an hour listening to me talk. That's not how the exploratory goes in person, so it's not how it's going to go online. So I structured the day in a way where they would come in, I would give them my expectations, I would show them a project, and then I would let them leave the Zoom call and go do work. And that was kind of my version of a breakout room, so I was trusting them to do their work on their own, which doesn't always happen with every group. I understand that. But I was trying to give them, I don't know, I don't, I guess, freedom. (laughs) I would give them the freedom to do it. And then if they didn't do it, that would be their grade. But just like what Catlin talks about, I had an agenda, which would list all the time slots, when they were supposed to be in the Zoom, when they were supposed to be working on their own, what they should have been working on. So that was their clear expectations piece. Each project had step-by-step instructions or a set of what I was looking for when they passed it in. I had a way for them to communicate with me outside of the Zoom. We had a thing, we set up a Slack. So Slack is a chat tool that's used in industry. I set up a Slack so that they could communicate with me via the keyboard, you know, or we could set up an individual call through Slack if they were struggling. And some students took advantage of it. Some students didn't. And they could also reach me through email. And they always knew they were coming back to me on Zoom at the next time slot. So when I look back on that, I'm actually proud of how that went. I'm, I feel like it was successful. There were some students who I just knew weren't connecting. And those students, I think, just need an in-person environment. It wasn't the fact that I wasn't trying to do it with my instructions because there were students that were engaged. There were students that communicated. It was just the type of student and what they need through school. So also another thing I did, there was a lot of personal feedback. I tried to give as much personal feedback as I could. And I was doing it with private comments. (laughs) And now I know about (laughs) Moat. And if I had known about Moat at the time, I probably would have done voice comments because that would have been even more personal to help them feel more connected to me as an instructor. Um, But that's fine. At the end of Exploratory, I also sent personal emails to those who were really like, for lack of better words, killing it, um, because I wanted them to know that they did a good job, because it's really hard to, you know, I, I bet they felt it was hard to know what I thought about them, just as I thought, I felt it was hard to know how they felt about the class same thing it's a two-way street so i gave them definitely personal emails for a good job at the end of the week as well finally the most important part of exploratory is the auction and what we do is they they get money every day they get paid it's part of our frameworks so we use they use that money at the end of the week to win real prizes so that was one thing logistically i was like whoa how am i going to do this remotely I can't cut it out, I can't. This is the one thing everyone looks forward to and to take it away from these kids, it's just sad and it shouldn't happen. So I spent some time and I figured out how to hold that auction online and it went well. I had two laptops going, it worked. (laughs) And I encouraged these students to come to my shop the following week to pick up their prize so that I could finally meet them in person. And I'll tell you, I think half of the class came for their prize, half of the class didn't. So, you know, it it doesn't always reach every kid, but just that, having them come to see me and find, even if it's for a prize, I felt like I was successful in that regard. So that was awesome. And the best thing, the best thing is that one of the students from that group actually picked my shop. So <laughs> to me to me that's the validation that all the work I did to try and engage them during that remote exploratory week it worked for at least one kid so I'm totally fine with that. So before this podcast episode gets too long it's hard. I'm just going to say that it's hard. It is a lot of work. But if your heart is in the right place with as a teacher and the students are the center of what of everything you do you will do it you will do it, and though it seems time-consuming at the time, it will feel worth it one day. So I encourage you to try these um, strategies that Catlin gives us if you are still remote. If you're going back in person, keep these strategies in mind because they work in person too. Students are always the center. So thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next episode, and I hope, I wish you luck in your teaching endeavors going forward, whether it's remote or in person.